Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Chris Wolf, and uh, we're going to have a special two-part edition today. And joining me this week, our roundtable of radio regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalia Linas, from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Remesong. And so let's jump into what will clearly be a free-ranging discussion. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. The death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II has stirred up powerful emotions, and not just across the pond. Many Americans are mourning just as much as the Brits. The spectacle, the pomp and circumstance have many enthralled, and the grief seems real. It feels like, for everybody, an end of an era. But the UK is also in the midst of another great change. One of the Queen's last official acts was to welcome a new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, to succeed the controversial Boris Johnson. Her inner cabinet is notable as for the first time in history, there are no white men in the highest political offices of the United Kingdom. But the new government is also being criticized for having no ideas and no vision for the country at a time of accelerating, ec accelerating economic distress. So uh, what to make of all the changes across the pond and how can we relate for real? So let me throw it to, uh, Jeff, first, uh, where, uh, how are you grieving the loss of Her Majesty? Well, a uh, point of personal privilege, uh, I will point out that uh, Her Majesty passed on my birthday. Mm. Uh, so uh, that uh, I'll, I'll always remember that day uh, from there. But, you know, I have mixed reviews on uh, the, the whole um, uh, monarchy. You know, I live in a country that rebelled against the monarchy. And, uh, you know, I, I some, sometimes laugh when uh, I give a tour of the State House and um, the first statue that ever came into the sta uh, State House was a statue of uh, George Washington. And uh, he appears to be wrapped in a cloak, a regal gown. And there was uh, objection to that statue being brought into the State House uh, in that fashion. And the artist said, oh, that's not a regal cloak of any kind. He's wrapped in a flag coming off of the field of battle. So he was welcomed into the state house, and that statue has been there ever since uh, 1824. And I, and I think of that, uh, you know, uh, we rebelled against King George, and, and, and the monarchy has survived for so long. And I, I think of the good work uh, that has been done by the monarch uh, in England, and I think of how revered Queen Elizabeth wa was uh, serving uh, for over 70 years in that role, uh, just an incredible, um, incredible reign. And uh, 
brought a sense of uh, measured engagement by people and uh, the outpouring of grief that we see across the world uh, is is positively amazing and and positively uh, a tribute to how uh, she has had a tremendous impact. So I have that dichotomy going on in my mind of of rebellion yet reverence for uh, the queen. And uh, I'm sitting here wondering uh, how King George will uh, succeed her and whether he will uh, have the same impact uh, that she had. And uh, I also sit here and I wonder how long is the monarch uh, going to last uh, in, in, in the world? And, you know, it's amazing that we have the transition to a new prime minister uh, in Great Britain at the same time as you have the transition uh, to a new king. So uh, interesting times ahead. And uh, Chris, you have lived and breathed this stuff. I can tell from your Texas accent. So I'm really uh, anxious to uh, hear, uh, you know, your thoughts on it and, uh, you know, how, you know, whether my perspective is just uh, misplaced and uh, that there is an active role uh, for the monarchy. Wow. Texas accent. How does that go? Pip, pip, yeehaw. (laughs) Giddy up. Um, So it's interesting because... um, Polling consistently for pretty much the last century has shown about 20 to 25% of the UK uh, voters are dead against the monarchy and want to become a republic. Mm-hmm. And there has been a few protests around the um, uh, the royal funeral and the uh, events around that. But I think, you know, few, few and far between at the moment. It's just not, I think most people know it's not the time or place just yet to, to bring up those. But Charles has never been particularly popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that against him. He's we've seen a slightly eccentric and a little bit of a meddler, uh, which of course uh, Americans need to remember under the UK Constitution, which doesn't exist on paper, but under all the accumulation of precedents and rules and laws that they have, the monarch is there simply to act as, in in a sense, a counselor, an advisor, uh, without actually. Uh, meddling, someone who can listen to the problems of the government. Uh, uh, please tell us what them. you. Uh, please tell us what you mean by meddler and meddling. I'm uh, I'm intrigued because you say it sort of tongue in cheek. He's, tell us what that's all about. So, as I was saying, that you we have no idea what the Queen's position was on anything uh, politically, uh, in terms of geopolitics or domestic politics or international relations or what's the best way to run the taxation system in the country or how to uh, manage environmental uh, change and distress. And But we know a lot about what Charles is thinking uh, because he's been fairly active, in particular in campaigning for a subject close to your heart, Jeff, the environment. And he gets flack for that because he's not supposed to as king whereas he was uh, as prince of wales he has said in interviews that he's not going to bring any of that activism into the the new job as it were but uh you know he has caught flack on that in the past uh so it's it's going to be interesting times to see if he can keep his his trap shut oh, i shouldn't say that about the royal family um to on on these sensitive kinds of issues with with regard to the 
the desire that some seem to feel might be, and particularly with uh, the ascension of Charles to the throne, might pick up a little bit, the, the desire for a republic, a return to republic, or actually not a return, but basically to wipe away the, you know, the whole facade of royalty and the monarchy of, of England. How viable do you think that is? I mean, particularly, let's say he reigns for 10 years. I mean, he's 70, more than that. He could reign for 20 years, you know, 25 years based on his family's longevity. Do you think there's a potentially um, a day when you'd be seeing the monarchy told to pack it in and get on back to Cheapside, you know, for a while? <laughs> I, I can't imagine it because the other 80% uh, of the country has such a deep affection and reverence for the country, at least from my personal uh, anecdotal experience and from the polls as well, that uh, it's hard to imagine that being happening without some kind of catastrophic well, uh, now, event. Now, when we talk about polls in England, let's, 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 let's remember what, what's been going on lately, Brexit. I mean, how viable was that poll? <laughs> so the, again, I don't know if there's any going mm -hmm. back. If you're going to shift into the political arena, mm -hmm. uh, it would be, and I'm sure that the Europeans would even want uh, the Brits back in mm -hmm. the European mm -hmm. Union, even if they came begging on their knees, mm -hmm. um, which um, is an interesting reminder that the first time the Brits applied to join the European Union was begging on their knees because the economy in the early 70s was on its, was broken. The mm -hmm. the the inflation it's like deja vu all over again inflation mm. was running rampant there was um a huge amount of um industrial strife as workers were um striking and taking on uh the government and their employers for better uh, working conditions um and energy was a particular crisis there were blackouts i remember growing up looking for candles uh to because the energy uh, was either being chaotically delivered or the workers were on strike and um, so yeah that's some interesting parallels to today there's a, yeah, I mean, a it, looming it, energy crisis in europe far worse than right. than anything we're looking at here in the us right. uh, and thanks the strikes the, and the the energy and the strikes in, in in particularly in england when you can go back to the Jarrow march mm -hmm. uh, the geordie boys up north uh, the miners coming down marching from right north of london uh, north of england down to london and what that meant at that time now yeah, at that, that time it was a there was a positive response well i think the, that was in the 1920s when mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. uh, workers um were feeling their strength uh they had felt their own power as it were in the in the sense that all men had been needed in world war one mm -hmm. and valued and they suddenly have had a higher sense of their own self-worth and also the upper classes were terrified by the marxist revolution taking place in russia and the attempted revolutions elsewhere uh, in europe and across the world um as was indeed the you know the capitalist class as it were in the united states there was a lot of fear about the 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 wobblies and people remember them here the international workers of the world mm -hmm. who were uh, striking in many places in the uh, United States, I mean, holding industrial strikes, not um, striking in a violent way as such. But the um, so, you know, there's that historical context as, as well. So we don't have that in today's environment. There isn't a threat of a, a real Marxist takeover of, of the world. 
in the true sense. I think that word Marxist socialist has been bandied around uh, very inaccurately for many years in the United States. So the, which brings me back to my big bugbear about education in this country. The STEM is great, but um, you know, there's so much more to learn about life than just science and technology and math. Yeah. We've been yeah. referred to as an ahistorical society. And in, the a, States. in a sense, apolitical. I don't, I talk to, uh, I work with and talk to a lot of young people and there seems to be not, not a profound ignorance, but like a, a lack of awareness of the kind of things that we took for granted growing up on our respective sides of the pond about how politics works, uh, the mechanics of the constitution and things of that nature. You know, remarkably, we have um, become a culture that uh, repels at the sound of the word politics. And I firmly uh, resist that. And every time I hear it, say, oh, we don't talk politics here. I said, politics is life. Anytime you interact with other human beings and an attempt to uh, set boundaries and um, you know, perspective on where you're going together, uh, from the simple act when I talk to elementary students, uh, if I were to ask you folks uh, if we were going to order pizzas, uh, what flavors we would put on the pizzas, uh, the decision making coming to what flavors we were going to put on the pizza to serve 35 kids is is an act of political behavior. And, uh, you know, we should not be repulsed by that word. We should invite the conversations uh, into our homes. And, you know, I think over the past uh, five or six years, uh, that has led to some division, uh, not only in our country, uh, but uh, in our own homes. But, uh, you know, it's an important part of life. And uh, I am amazed at how much the conversations about politics and political life are so spirited in other countries. Yet here, it's like, oh, my God, they're talking politics. We don't do that here. And, and I think that is uh, a wrong way to vision it because politics is so important uh, to how we uh, direct our life. And it's one of the things that thrills me about coming and being a part of this show and this panel where we dive into those topics deeply. And uh, we don't always agree, but, uh, you know, it's a spirited conversation and uh, it's, it's thoroughly enjoyable. And I hear a lot of feedback from people who are listening to it at home who say, uh, you know, we enjoy those conversations and uh, we're able to cover a lot of ground. I mean, who knew that we would have the ability to cover uh, Great Britain and the monarch and uh, the new uh, the new uh, prime minister. So uh, well, I, let's keep it going. I think part of it, too, Jeff, is is that there's reasoned discourse and then there is just flat out vitriol. And we seem to have no shortage of crazy uncles in the United States <laughs> you know, who at holidays are ready to turn that, you know, flip the table. Um, I invite and, you to my house for Thanksgiving some year <laughs> and you'll see a host of crazy. Right. But but it, it it's about the fact that we are averse to confrontation. Um, and that's the problem is when things deteriorate and devolve into outright confrontation, people lose their lust for having a a serious discourse about something where everybody walks away 
in some form of appreciative disagreement. And that's mm. a, a real issue. Mm. Um, what are you accusing me of? What? No, no, I'm what not you accusing say? you of anything. <laughs> You're, you're you're on the good side of the discussion. <laughs> it's exa exactly Stay on the like, sunny side. And let me let me just say that we're in violent agreement. <laughs> but get, returning back to the, the question of the monarchy that was raised earlier, you know, monarchy, yes or no. Uh, I would say the following: there is an emotional component of that question, and then there is an economic component to that question. The monarchy has a cost and the monarchy has a benefit. The The driest of views on this is the cost-benefit analysis that most um, you know, economics majors would be happy to wage. Uh, and that said, I think that the monarchy is an interesting exercise in the preservation of, I guess what I'll call social antiquities, that is tradition. And and the pageantry that goes with, and also the fact that given that so many monarchies are now gone or just quietly operative without drawing attention to themselves, I, I think that the, the British monarchy uh, has a tremendous amount of value for the country. I think, I think that just what it does in terms of tourism, what it does in terms of image, what it does in terms of call it borrowed reverence for both uh, the royals and the country. I, I, I see it as a net plus, a, a big net plus, quite frankly. And um, I hope that those who want to switch to a solid republic or, or push the monarchy off the dock and into the water, uh, I, I would say that those people are not perhaps realizing that they already have what they need. That is because of the fact that the monarchy has taken what is largely an apolitical position uh, and enabling people to vote on all manner of issues and associate themselves with all manner of parties in the country. Uh, they're enjoying perhaps equal or even better degrees of freedom in some cases than we do in the U.S. I don't think it's broken. I mean, that's just my first takeaway. No, I mean, I think you're right. There's the social glue aspect of it, but uh, it's something that people can look to uh, regardless of their disagreements and other issues as something that uh, identifies the brand of the country. And and you're also right in that it this um, British political thinkers have often identified this as providing the illusion of continuity. Um, exactly. That mm -hmm. um, we pride ourselves... Sorry, we'll say we, the Brits uh, pride themselves in contrast to the French in that there's been multiple real political upheavals in the UK, constitutional upheavals, but it's been masked with this um, continuity, whereas the French uh, and uh, marked with this continuity and relative peace, whereas in France, there's been a similar set of just as profound political upheavals, but have accompanied with violence and this constitutional up rewriting every couple of generations and so you know the changes have just been equally profound but there's been you know almost no political violence in the uk compa compared to france and mm -hmm. you know what as you say many people would argue that the benefits have been just as real but i do want to point out that not everything is rosy with the monarchy just yes there's been very real grief there's been very real feelings of affection for the for the crown expressed on the other hand some people have been expressing 
anger and spite at Queen Elizabeth as, a, in a sense, a symbol of the old colonial imperial order and all its abuses and exploitation. So let me throw that out uh, for uh, anyone interested to comment on on that issue. Yeah, the the uh, one I'll thing that open. Yeah, the one aspect of that that comes to mind, my mind immediately, is Pete and I. I think we're probably the only ones who really might remember this uh, as a, an actual event in our lives. It was the um, the death of Winston Churchill and the pomp that surrounded that. Absolutely. Which will the the I'm afraid I believe the the, the Queen's bear, uh, ceremony is going to pale next to that. Because in addition to being the death of Winston Churchill, you know, this fabulous um, British statesman, this world renowned figure who crossed the Atlantic and referred to himself as 100 percent American, 100 percent British because of his mum. It was also a ceremony to mark the end of, you know, the the British Empire, though it had died many years before. Mm -hmm. But I think that was the official end to the British Empire. It was also the official end to British colonial expansion. And to the, finally to the 19th century, because if there was anyone who was living in the 20th century at that time, who was a 19th century man, it was Winston Churchill and the the power that he exerted during his time and the sway that he held over people was unmatched, unmatched and still to this day unmatched. There's never well, been Churchill, a statement of that stature, I think. Churchill was every bit the statesman, and I think he understood writing and the power of language, and he mm-hmm. labored over oh, everything yeah. he ever put out publicly. And, uh, you know, I will, full disclosure, I am very much a Churchillian fan. Um, I've read many of the works. I have two or three of his bios. Um, and uh, as an aspiring writer, I always use the word aspiring, because mm-hmm. that's what we're always doing. Um, he is sort of my Mount Everest if I could, if if I could write like that, but uh, this the statesman word that you used is key because I also see where he was a politician, mm-hmm. clearly as a statesman, you know, the right man for the times. He I was think the man that, on horseback. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the royals also have a statesperson's role. That is, they could speak above the fray, uh, and they can take a statesmanlike position. And at this point, uh, having watched it a few times with a very critical eye. I wanted to know where we're going with King George III. Charles, Charles III. I'm sorry, yes. George yeah. III didn't end up uh, so well. No, yes, that's everybody. right, yes. Yeah. Uh, King Nat- Charles Natalie, III. I saw you uh, nodding uh, when I was mentioning that colonial legacy. You wanted to chime in? I did, Chris, because uh, I don't know how many of the other members in the audience are on Twitter, but on Twitter there was a very lively um, sort of can I say celebration of the death of the queen and the and what that meant, especially in uh, you know parts of the world, whether it's you know Nigerians or people who who felt and remember and know the stories of their parents and grandparents of of real harm that was done uh, in the name of the colonial the empire or, or whatever right. and and recognizing that the queen was the queen at that time you know and so whether or not she herself ordered you know massacres or things like that there is this. There was a celebration and and there was a big debate uh, around Professor, uh, her name is uh, Professor Anya. She's a Nigerian professor at Carnegie Mellon. And then Jeff Bezos retweeted one of her tweets, which was was pretty strongly worded uh, around, you know, hoping that the queen dies in pain. And she talked about her story as, um, you know, part of the Igbo 
sort of ethnic group in Nigeria and, and remembering the genocide and her parents and the stories. And, and so it, it has escalated in, in, in ways that, you know, were surprising. And then people saying, you know, show some respect for the dead. And then people who have suffered oppression saying, when did you show respect for the dead, you know, indigenous dead or other groups? And, and so there is this conversation happening. And I don't know if I'm just part of this, you know, small group on Twitter that is very much because my research at Harvard is around structural racism. So a lot of the work I, I do do work on is around white supremacy and how naming the harms doesn't um, take away from her as a person, but, you know, trying to find the right balance, uh, but whitewashing the death of a, of a queen. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not British. And, um, but I think that's sort of, uh, well, you have yeah. a, you have a horse in the game. You're Greek. Yeah, you have, I'm, I'm have Greek. a horse. Yes. Philip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh. And, and, you know, the, the Greek sort of, you know, the, the stories that we tell ourselves about our history and our responsibility is is important. And I think I, I think there was some desire for, you know, the Brits who say, you know, this is like our grandmother, our collective grandmother to reflect on the harms that could she have done any different? I don't know. So, yeah, I just I want to agree with you. Yeah. That there is this completely different conversation happening and it's important for us to, to recognize that and, and pull the the good parts, which is the, you know, let's educate ourselves like what has been the harm and and. Um, and why would some people feel like uh, a celebration? And right. I somewhere that the Irish football team also was like yep. chanting. So I don't, I don't know. I haven't followed the Irish part, but maybe you can speak to that. Very mixed feelings. So the, the, I think it's a, you know, uh, you're right. The legacy is an important thing to acknowledge and about all the abuses of the past. Absolutely. Uh, my question is like, at what point, how does individual responsibility merge with like the the need to move on? Because you could argue, conversely, that the queen presided over that transition, the end of the empire, the the fact, as we mentioned at the beginning, that for the first time in history, there are no white men in the inner cabinet of the United Kingdom. So we've gone from A to B, and a person lived through that time. And yes, those abuses happened in the, in the decolonization process and in its aftermath. Because you know structures were not left in particularly in Nigeria well enough to to take account of political realities there. So how do we move on? Like yes, we acknowledge the past, but do we then? I I the point I guess I fall short on is wishing an excruciating death on somebody who in effect had presided over transition from the abuses of the past to a, a bet hopefully better world that we live in now. So that was where I, I couldn't follow along with that argument. Mm. Mm. Well, part of it, I think, is that the aggrieved have long memories. Um, also, too, good, turning back to briefly my my very dry view of cost benefit. Clearly, there's a benefit on home soil. When you look out across the empire, that benefit wanes very, very quickly and becomes a increasingly a large to massive net minus with respect to being associated with the royals. So um, are we done with the transition? You know, with the, what is it, the remaining 15 countries in the Commonwealth? Um, probably not by a long shot. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it will, I think it will play itself out over the next 20 years, perhaps rather rapidly uh, through Charles's reign. And Chris, another sort of big discussion point, which we're having in the U.S. too, is around reparations, right? I don't think we're having it yet, but CARICOM, you know, the Caribbean sort of group, has demanded for former colonizers to pay reparations, acknowledging that the the fact that we see, you know, 
really, really wealthy countries and really poor countries right now, in part has to do with the exploitation, you know, minerals that were stolen, uh, systems that were, you know, because of that legacy. And I don't know if any country right now is able to, I mean, the, the price tag would be huge. And I don't know, Jeff, if you have been following at all in Massachusetts, you know, there are Boston and Cambridge and other parts are, are starting to talk about reparations for, um, you know, African descendants of African slaves uh, or enslaved people in this country and possibly beyond that. So I think, you know, that is possibly what people want, that, that it's not enough to say, we're better off now, we've moved on, and they're saying, you know, the harm requires uh, some repair. And that repair requires that you uh, allow us to do that truth telling, to be honest with our feelings and to say this. And I, I don't condone um, this professor saying that it's excruciating, you know, that that she that's a queen. But, but I do feel like it is appropriate for us to hear that that amount of trauma that, you know, somebody would wish that upon someone else means that there have been the, the historic trauma is there. And, and so... I think trying to not hear it is also a problem because then it doesn't allow us to have this honest conversation around reparations, repair the future, because we want to say we're in a better place now. Let's move on. Yeah. And so uh, listeners might say, well, this is all like distant history. But one example springs to mind, for example, with Jamaica, which was granted independence uh I think I, I around 1964. But one of the conditions was of, in, of independence was that the only real asset of natural resource in the country, the bauxite mine mm. and the uh, Tate and Lyle sugar factories were to remain um, tax exempt. So the new government couldn't um, tax them for an incredibly long period of time. And I'm not even sure what the situation is today. Um, but we're talking about at least a generation uh, where uh, you're expecting a new country to take itself um, into the international arena as its own power, but the principal revenues, it denied the access to the principal revenue sources on its soil. So it's not just a distant historical episode. There are more recent challenges uh, that need to be thought through as, as well. Yes, go yeah, ahead. If Mike. I could just jump in for a second. And first, because this is a very uh, interesting discussion, as we look across the pond, and the monarchy has, I think, in England, been a great distraction from the politics. I think that's what you had mentioned, Pete, that you ended up with this sense of uh, of continuity uh, actually in the midst of chaos uh, because of the monarchy. But at the same time, too, the monarchy uh, as a distraction is very similar to what we have here in the United States, wherein we have, uh, except we don't have what is called a constitutional monarchy, what we have is a sense of privilege monarchy, as evidenced by, for those of us of color, the excruciating dual criminal justice system, for example, the inequality of wealth. Um, and I feel at the same level, those people who live in the Commonwealth their frustration as well as their anger, uh, because here we celebrate, uh, you know, this family that most recently, when they had an intrusion of color into the family, suddenly it started to leak out, if you will, that, you know, there is possibly racism inside the family. There's this animosity toward others inside the family, uh, which they attempted to try to squelch, you know, very quickly. And the queen, uh, I think, uh, did her best 
to try to keep things not only out of the public, but also keep things on an even keel inside of the family. So, I, you know, I don't think that we ought to really, uh, without some kind of objectivity, you know, look at the monarchs as simply a means in England where they have made all of this progress. In many ways, I agree with those who are in those Commonwealth countries that, you know, this has not all been a bed of roses here, folks. And to some degree, publicly, the monarchy has never really acknowledged its role in terms of keeping people subjugated or the racism that it's created inside of the Commonwealth. And maybe we can speak to that, too, in terms of the parallel here in the United States, because uh, I feel the same kind of angst when I look at you know, for example, the lack of bringing to justice of those people who are in high positions uh, in this country and a sense that, yeah, they're above the law. You know, they are the aristocracy here. And I'd like to get, uh, you know, my colleagues, my friends here, you, you know, your your look and your take on that as well. Well, as being kind of a sideways member of that, I mean, <laughs> certainly not one of power or uh, extreme privilege. Well, my privilege was inborn. I was white, middle class, uh, you know, not a wasp, but, uh, you know, pretty much fit the bill at that time when I was coming up and, you know, and my profile fit for many, many years afterwards as someone who was given a pass on certain things. Um, I was certainly given a pass on a bad education because I had an excellent education that was just handed to me that, um, Many others who did not look like me or that didn't come from my background did not have access to. And it was something that I was aware of very early on in life because I lived in Florida for many years and as a youngster and was aware of Jim Crow and segregation on a day to day basis. Um, but at the, and it's just where do we go from there? I can certainly see now that, you know, we are losing some ground, but. I don't think there's any a day of parody that's going to come in my lifetime. So what someone like myself who has benefited, I did not rub it in anyone's face, I hope, but someone who has benefited just from birth, you know, an accident of birth, I try to do the best I can to admit that, you know, there were times when I was given a pass. I was given a very great pass, but um, I don't know what to do with it beyond that, to tell you the truth, which is why I seek out things of this sort, to be part of a discussion, to be part of a conversation about where I come from and where others come from and how we can exist and how this can lead to this, this, this attempt to not just coexist, but to have a respect and a regard for each other. And for me, a great part of that is my, my faith as a Christian. Now that, and then that's become very difficult. <laughs> Because I am, I would come under a classification of an evangelic Christian. I do not follow the dictates of what we call the juniors, Falwell and people like Jerry Falwell Jr. and um, oh, the great evan the greatest of Billy Graham's son, Fred uh, Franklin. I don't follow them. I don't follow them. But I have friends who uh, assume that since I have become an evangelic Christian, that that's what I do. All of us voted for Trump. All of us believe hard right line guidelines, and we do not vary. And that in, in and of itself is a, that that's that's a real prejudice that I feel. 
And it's probably the first one that I've ever felt in my life. So as I say, I, I look for these discussions and I try to keep conversations over open and I try to see what there is I can do to alter language. I, I'd be glad to do that, alter language against any barriers that um, my use of language might put up to others. I say, you know, we call this show More Perfect Union right. for a reason, um, because, you know, the idea is, you know, we understand that, you know, the great American uh, idea was set out as an experiment 245 years ago, and it's still an experiment. Uh, and uh, I like to think things are getting better. I do feel that things are getting better, but we still have a, a great way to go. And I can tell you that this idea of how we get to a more perfect union is what drew me into government service. Um, I spoke about it at the Franklin uh, event commemorating the 21st anniversary of 9-11. And it was those events that drew me into uh, public service since 2001 and uh, began my course uh, focusing on education as a school committee member did as much as I thought I could do on the local level, and then moved to the, the town council, where I hope to do a little bit more. And now at the state level, given an opportunity to address some of these questions and, and bend us uh, towards justice on that moral arc. And a big part of that is understanding that for us to be truly successful, we have to have a quality of opportunity. And uh, that's what I like to think that our Commonwealth of Massachusetts, our nation, the United States, really stands for this notion of equal justice under the law, equality of opportunity. And I I firmly believe that the role of the government uh, is to provide that uh, equality of opportunity. And I think a large part of my focus in my years uh, in government has been on education because I find education to be the great equalizer. And on that note, I was a bit uh, concerned that some research was uh, un- uh, talked about yesterday, a report that's talking about the lack of progress that we have made uh, in equality. But uh, my focus over the past few years has been on this uh, college and high school experience. Uh, And a big component of that has been early college, providing opportunities in communities such as Chelsea and Lawrence for and Worcester for uh, underserved populations to get exposed to college opportunities while they're in high school to show that uh, they can do this work uh, at the college level and that they are college material and uh, that that's something that can open up a new life for them. And uh, the statistics have shown that of all the things that we have done in education, going back to 1994 with education reform, uh, the early college opportunities that we have provided have been the most equalizing work that we have done uh, in the field of education. Still room for improvement, but you know that's, you know, that's, I think, one of the great roles of our government. And I feel particularly bound to that idea based on the work of Horace Mann, uh, who happened to have been born in Franklin, said that uh, 
you know, we're going to build these schoolhouses across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts so we can spread education because that's what's going to give people a, a, an opportunity to succeed. Uh, another great experiment. I think it has uh, worked well for many, but there are still some who are left behind. And we certainly look for ways that we can improve it for everyone. But, uh, you know, that's that's my thought, uh, because that's what I believe uh, government is all about. And I think that harkens back to my opening lines about uh, being conflicted about this notion of a monarchy, because if anything stands for inequality, uh, it's uh, uh, kings and queens and princes and princesses. Uh, that's not my idea of uh, the so-called American dream. But, you know, I still have deep respect for the, the monarchy, but uh, I do have some conflict, uh, particularly when it comes to this idea of equality. Another more perfect hour has flown by. And of course, this is such an interesting topic. I think we're going to have to continue uh, the second part next week. But uh, it's goodbye for now. And if you'd like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at uh, info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. If you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. For Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, along with Peter Jay and my co-host, Nick Ramasong, I'm Chris Wolf. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.